Hello, and welcome to the Skylight Books podcast. My name is Elodie, and I'm thrilled to have Tommy Orange here today to discuss his eagerly awaited second novel, Wandering Stars. His debut novel, There There, which follows 12 Native Americans living in Oakland as they prepare and travel to the Big Oakland powwow, was a finalist for the 2019 Pulitzer Prize and received the 2019 American Book Award. There There is an urgent and powerful book, and Wandering Stars is no exception. In the novel's opening pages, we meet Jude Starr, a young man who survives the 1864 Sand Creek Massacre. From there, we follow Jude to Florida, where he is imprisoned with Victor Bear Shield, a fellow survivor. If these names sound familiar, it's because Jude Starr and Victor Bear Shield are the ancestors of Opal Viola Victoria Bear Shield and Jackie, Luther, Orville, and Lonnie Redfeather, characters we encounter and fall in love with in their there. Wandering Stars is about addiction and identity, survival and love, and a moving portrait of a family as they attempt to process, recover, and heal from a legacy of institutional violence and trauma. Tommy Orange is a graduate of the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. An enrolled member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes of Oklahoma, he was born and raised in Oakland, California. Thank you so much for being here, Tommy. And I would love to start with a reading from the book, and then we can talk some more. Chapter 10, Everything Blue. Charles Starr was writing again. He didn't know it would be the last time. It was the morning before the morning he would wake up to rob a general store. He was trying to convince himself of something, that he would die soon, that he would not. Did he think he would die because he was going to do a robbery at gunpoint and the person he would rob might pull out a gun and shoot him? Did he think this was what brought him to the page to write in a way he hadn't been able to before? If it worked to make him write, would he need to keep taking these kinds of risks in order to keep writing? What was he writing? There were connected points, events, and the people he'd come from that he wanted to try to say without delivering them into the vanishing, where it was assumed his people were headed. Everything had become so muddied, so filthy feeling, his own skin spattered with mud from the mess they made. His parents, by mixing their blood and making him, surely there was a story he was a part of that spoke to the purpose of his life. But the answer to why anyone had come here to live and to die was never clear, nor why some died too soon and others passed ripe, who looked like rotting fruit fallen from the tree. Most days he just let the laudanum do what it would do to him, which he would have trouble remembering later, and hate himself for not being able to stop wiping out his own memory. Sometimes, in his effort to get rid of memory, all that was left was the deep past. So then he'd be thinking about his people. His tribe was in Oklahoma, and there were no parents left to speak of. He'd never found his father, and his mother was surely praising God in whatever Jesusless part of the world she decided she would help save. He had never known a God. He'd wanted to. God felt more like more to him like a whole than a presence. He knew something holy was happening to everyone, even while life could feel a hell of a lot like hell. 
there were other people, people who hadn't made you, who ended up making you. There was Opal. There had always been Opal, the purity of her voice, her sound mind. She was a stone. But he felt his entire worth gone, despite having Opal. She couldn't be had. She was her own. And so did everyone belong to themselves and to themselves alone. He just then, as if suddenly felt like he belonged to the thing that he was doing, this writing or thinking or being at the page, which felt like both doing and waiting. He wondered then if all waiting didn't require some amount of faith, if all of life was waiting, waiting for what? He felt then that everything was blue, the blue of sky and the blue of starlight, but also deep inside the blue of vein and bruise and song. It lived in him, the blue smoke he'd read about in a letter from his father about first running away from a massacre. He didn't know anyone else like him. So he was that thing more than alone, lost even to himself. Yet here he was, here he remained. Even now as he was feeling he would go, leave the world. Was it only a feeling or did the feeling mean more than the feeling? He felt then his body was a metaphor, human history, some elaborate hoax, the world made against itself, split in half, everywhere with its good and evil, love and hate, day and night, dream and waking, heaven and hell, Indians and men. He was once a child, an Indian child in Indian country, and his people put him on a train to the school, and the school took him further past himself and left him somewhere he couldn't find his way back from. He felt something bulging in him. He felt pregnant with death and so tired of enduring. The wolf was still following him, that wicked dog of need inside. The laudanum tincture, that alcohol and morphine mixture sprinkled with powdered gold and pearls, it had done something to his mind, something he couldn't get back unless he stopped using it, spooning it into his mouth. He'd just been trying to make himself feel better. Had that been it? Had that been what everyone had been trying to do about being alive? Find whatever made them feel better about the hells, sure to visit the seasons of their lives again and again? There was more. Something more. What was it? He would not die, he thought then. He would get the money and with Opal find what it was that made everything make sense, love or peace or just a little place to live near where he could hear water and the birds singing in the morning when he woke next to her and perhaps their children. Was it hope then that he felt in his heart or disappointment? He couldn't tell. It was heavy. And he didn't know if that was good or not either. He looked at his spoon, then out the window at the sun. Thank you so much for reading. I wanted to start there because while reading your book, I found myself thinking about this question of what do we inherit? That just was a question I kept returning to when reading the book. Um, and it's such a powerful book about trauma and ancestry and what's passed down to us and what we don't even know is passed down to us and how we attempt to understand our history, our personal history, which I think is also connected to the history that is 
the United States or the idea of the United States or America. Um, and all of that is just to say, was there a similar question driving your work or were you also thinking about inheritance? Yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, writing is, is an extension of thinking for me and an, an extension of feeling. It's a way for me to process things that don't make sense, maybe. And there are similarities that I have um, with the characters. That's where I write from a very personal place, uh, even though their lives don't necessarily resemble mine in many ways. Um, my dad, you, you know, kind of made a choice to not raise us in a more traditional way. We, we, we raised us with my mom in Oakland and um, he, his first language was Cheyenne. He could have taught us that and um, he didn't. It, it was sort of a more, I come from a generation of people that, um, assimilation seemed like the the better way to go to just like to fit in would be better than to you know now it's more valued to to know your language and and stuff like that and so the question of how much did i inherit of this deep past that he was and is connected to has always kind of got at me because i i know that i do um and and I, you know, I grew up with him, so there's stuff that he directly passed to me. But he was raised by his grandparents and great grandparents, and um, sort of abandoned by his own parents. Um, so he had access to people that were much closer to something like the Sand Creek Massacre. We grew up hearing the story, um, and you know, there. At one point, Opal is talking about. Um, I, Luther, I think, is trying to make sense of something that Opal talks about, like intuition. Um, and she she explains it as like, well, if, if your people like knew a lot of bad, like met a lot of bad people along the way, you know, a bad person when you see one, like you can feel it because we learned, we had to learn to feel it. And that's just one of the ways that like, you know, intuition could be something we inherit and we could know certain things because of the way that our people experienced life. And, you know, I don't know how much I believe in like spiritual inheritance or how much is genetics, but I do know a great deal gets passed down. That's not directly oral or, you know, that's not um, a one-to-one. -one. Like I learned how to weave this, whatever from my grandmother, there's stuff that there's mysterious stuff. And I, I wanted to, use language to try to get at what all of that can, can feel like. Yeah, I think the the mystery of it is really interesting and you can feel how some of the younger characters, which I found so moving, how how they are so desperate to to understand themselves, but there's no clear answer and there's no like easy place to land. Um, Yet, yet being drawn to and just just knowing that you have a history and feeling that history, but not being able to articulate it. And I feel like you see how these different characters try to try to find a language for that past. Um, and yeah, I think one thing that was super interesting was it felt like there was a through line of a connection between creation and experience. Um, if not, creation and suffering but this idea of like alchemizing um 
a painful experience. Like there's that wonderful moment early on with the trumpet and um, Charles like performing his pain and, and everyone being able to really feel it and that being such a powerful moment. Um, were you thinking about that as well while writing the book? Yeah, definitely. I mean, music um, and art obviously are important to me. Um, maybe not the music part, obviously, but like my undergrad's in sound engineering and I played music before I was a writer. Um, and so um, I, I that stuff kind of like, I didn't plan for that stuff to get in. And then once it was in, I, you know, I wanted to have it be able to earn its place. So I wrote and leaned into it. But like, you know, even at the beginning, Jude Starr and, and Victor Bearshield are just like playing a drum and and singing. And there's sort of a a lift that happens from out of a lot of the suffering that they're going through. And I think that's, um, that's something that a lot of the characters connect to, this idea of transcending the pain and even using the pain as part of what will allow them to transcend Um it, it's definitely something that it's one of the saving graces of my life. And I think a lot of people go to art to not only to, to be transported, but to have something to, to be moved, to have some, you know, to feel something and have it move them to have an experience like that. So I wanted that for the characters. Um, and uh, yeah, it just sort of found its way as a through line um, as I, you know, I wanted to have as many things, positive and negative things that that existed through the generations. Um, yeah, I I think I read or heard that you're a runner and Orville ends up um, becoming a runner in the novel. Um, and I was, I was thinking or wondering if that was something that felt was a personal connection. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, I and I, you know, I played roller hockey and I sort of gave that to one of the characters named Sean Price. Um, so I, I, I have myself as a resource to pull from and, um, and I don't tend to base characters on real people. And so um, inevitably my characters will take on the things that are important to me. Um, but I also, by having a lot of experience with those things, I can better write into them. Um, and, and running in many ways saves, saves me still. Um, in in similar ways as Orville. And what made you want to return to Orville's family? Because you know, there there has so many characters, but we we come back to that family, and you're really going back and going back to what feels like the beginning in some ways. So, what made you want to go back to Orville? Oh, there was something about the idea that Orville was shot while dancing at this, you know, at this um, gathering of native people and, um, and this layering of history and how we're affected by history, how, how um, history affects the present. It just felt like there was a lot of layers to write into when I thought about Orville and, you know, I leave, I leave it sort of unknown at the end of there, there. Um, and I, I also wanted to, resolve that piece um, and ha have it play out. It's it's not an easy resolution, but to have it play out as like, how would you come back from that? And, you know, there's a lot of people that suffer from 
from shootings in this country. And usually it's just a headline and a number, but we don't check back in with people and see how they made it through. And so that was also interesting to write into. Um, and, you know, we're go- we've gone through this op- op- opioid crisis and it, it all just felt like it fit something that had layers that I wanted to write into. Yeah, there's that moment where Orville is searching for survivors on YouTube. And just the idea of that was so, or, or specifically students and young people who have survived school shootings. And that was just a moment where that felt so contemporary and so like awful and real and just just hit me in a different way because like you're saying again we always see it as the headlines but to see it in that context was just really jarring but it was like of course like kids are going online and trying to talk about or talking about their experiences um and I think the way that you weave in the day-to-day of real life like just you know so much of the book or a lot of the book is Orville you know, we're in Orville's mind or these various characters' minds, but you're so good at including the technology um, and and weaving that in in a way that is maybe, this is a small note, but I think it can feel really jarring and this book feels very timeless, yet also prescient to our moment. And that is a really hard thing to pull off. So I, I really just wanted to thank you for that because- Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really important for me to- for the contemporary parts to feel contemporary um, without, like you said, it's, it can be a pitfall like to, to reference stuff can feel empty and it can be jarring or it can pull you out of the work. And um, so I tried to like work it in, in a way that it's enriching the character and, and um, it's about their connection to it. Um, but I, you know, I really didn't want to write a historical part. That wasn't, it wasn't part of the plan. I, I sort of fell down a rabbit hole. Um, um, I was in Sweden for the translation of there, there, and I saw a newspaper clipping that, that led me to all this prison castle, Fort Marion boarding school history. And it was, it was cause it was connected to my tribe, Southern, Southern Cheyennes and, uh, we don't show up that much in history, like specifically Cheyennes do as a whole, but Southern Cheyennes, we don't, we don't have a big part in history. And that this was a huge, even though it's kind of an awful part of history to be the the blueprint for the boarding schools, but it's still a crucial part of history. And, and um, the, the reason I ended up tying it all together and not just like writing a separate book was because I, w- I was doing the research um, and I saw the list uh, a list of the names of prisoners um, at the at Fort Marion Prison Castle, and in reality, one of them was named Star, and another one was named Bear Shield. And I was like, "Whoa!" And so when I saw that, I was like, "Oh, I'm going to connect. This is going to be a family line that leads all the way back to this." So, wow! So that was completely coincidental. Yeah. Completely. Wow. Oh, I, I know when I saw. When I saw the names, and I already started writing a character named Star because I came up with the title for the book, Wandering Stars, um, you know, back in March of 2018. So when I saw the names, I like literally I started crying because it just felt like this is coming from somewhere else. Yeah, that's that really feels divine and also kind of feels like it relates to this book as well. Like you're going back yourself and looking and 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 it's connected to your own art like how 
powerful and beautiful. Um, yeah, I was in reading too, and especially because you get into the history and, you know, there is, I was reminded of the prologue in there, there where you're really outlining like, okay, this is, this is the history, you know, that hasn't been told about this country. Do you, how do you think about the balancing? This is a narrative that I want to tell a story about people and while also acknowledging that you're also telling a story that hasn't been told and you need to maybe relay information to people who don't have the context that you have. How do you balance those two things? Yeah, so there, I feel like there's enough, like, there's enough nonfiction out there in book form and on the internet that, like, if somebody's interested enough, um, you can easily go there. Like, I did a ton of research and I read a ton of books because I wanted to feel informed when when I was trying to write the world and, and for it to feel like that world and to see what was possible. But I don't end up including that much history or that much from my research um, because I don't particularly like historical fiction um, because sometimes it gets bogged down in the realism. And I really wanted to write about the interior lives of these people who, what it might've felt like, what would they have been thinking at this point in history? Um, so I, I feel like I, I much more lean on character and interiority as opposed to, uh, but, but I'm, because I do a ton of research, the details do come through and I, and I, I do want to make, I want to make it feel like that part of history and make it feel real because whatever pulls the reader out, it could be anything. you never want the reader to, to think about the fact that they're reading the book because that's, that stops you from reading. And the, and the point is to get readers into a state of like, I want to keep reading. One character I was fascinated by in terms of thinking about how you even went about writing, it was Richard Henry Pratt, who founded the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And not only do you make it clear who he is in terms of his role in racial segregation and you know this effort of assimilation and really erasing an entire culture from a people and yet it feels so personal you're writing you know you get into that interiority like what was that like to inhabit that person like someone who has enacted violence against your people and to not only write about that character but to live inside that character and there's in it for it to feel so specific you know you're writing about what's going on in his personal life this is you know we we turn to him after he's mentioned by other characters but in terms of when we get his point of view it's after you know kind of the fallout after his efforts and he's sort of this old man who's kind of on his way out what was that process like so Weirdly enough, because, you know, I, I've known about the boarding schools for a long time and Pratt is a name that always goes along with it as as its head villain character in the story of the boarding schools. And in doing the research, and there's a lot out there on Pratt, you know, um, there's like two biographies. Um, everything's like very boring and hard. To, it's hard to read. I, like I'm not good at, at 
I, I tend to cherry pick my research and like um, if the audiobook's available, it's a lot easier for me because I can do two things at once and and listen better. But Pratt is not the worst of the men at that time. Like Roosevelt was worse. Like the way people thought about Native people, Pratt, of course, kill the Indian, save the men. And of course, all of this stuff is bad. But he was like he had legitimate like friendships and and lifelong correspondence with native people who went to the school like he so he had he had a real investment in people's lives and and he you know he has said like if it was up to me I'd put them in public school but nobody's ready to hear that so he was sort of trying to do the best that he could do with what he, with what the conditions were at the time so in trying to get into his head, he's sort of this broken man who nothing that he tried to do worked out. I felt more compassion for him from doing the research than if I just was like, I'm going to write a villain, um, which I think could be fun, but that I don't think that's fair to him. And like I said, like, and he, he sort of makes an enemy out of Roosevelt in this and Roosevelt's like continued to be celebrated, even though he, I mean, to me, his position on Native people was awful. Um, and, uh, you know, he gets all this credit for being a conservationist or whatever. And um, he was out there shooting birds for fun. Like, it's, he j there's just things about him that are, I think we need to see a fuller picture of somebody like Roosevelt. And so it was, I don't know when I decided I'm going to write from Pratt's perspective. Um I don't know where, where I was at at that time. I know it was sort of in the madness of the pandemic, um, but it, it it was interesting to approach him not as a villain, but as like somebody at the time that was at least trying to help. Mm -hmm. Flawed. It was a flawed person, and the plan was totally flawed. But mm -hmm. he, the context of those times was that people just wanted the Indian problem to be, to go away. And that meant killing, mm -hmm. like erasing the culture or making them become just like white people right. or just killing them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of Toni Morrison and I noticed that the epigraph for part two is, I should read it actually, um, our, our diamond of, the, let me find it. Um, but anyway, I'm, tell, I'm, tell, it's it, it's uh, tell yeah. me your diamonds. It's just tell me your diamonds. I was like, okay, Joy, I wanted to get it right, but um, yeah, what is what is that about? That's just a very specific question for me because I love I love Morrison. So I when I see her, I so, get excited. Yeah, so I'm I am um, I was late to Toni Morrison. I did not read her until after they're there. Um, so I hadn't read her, you know, that's just not somebody, nobody ever told me to, to read her. And I think, um, sometimes people of color, the way that they categorize things were like, it's, it's just like assumption. If you're interested in African-American studies or native American studies, these people are for you. If you're interested, like they're not part of capital L literature, capital F fiction. They're not like masters of their craft. So when I found, when I realized how good Toni Morrison is, and I mean, like, she may be the best ever. Um, I I was like, I felt mad 
that I'd been missing out that nobody handed me one of her books and was like, take this person as seriously as you would take any writer you've ever read because mm-hmm. she's doing something that is like no one else. Um, so, you know, that's from beloved and, um, and uh, diamonds sort of appear in, in the book and they had a more prominent place in earlier drafts. And they live in the diamond, and even though it's spelled different, it's named after a guy with the last name D-I-M-O-N-D. Um, it just it felt like it fit for for this for this second part. Um, and in terms of researching the novel, did you look into your own family history, or was it mostly kind of historical? I mean, the the part where the young man runs away from the um, massacre. And um, and has a little boy with them. That is from a story that how my dad got his Cheyenne name. Um, so that's the story that he told. I I always thought growing up that he's telling us this like pretty awful massacre story, like in a, the spirit of like never forget that this happened to us. Like never forget where we stand on the U.S. government. We had like you know a white flag and an American flag that they told us to put there because we were protected and they came after women and children. You know, it was, I thought it was told in that spirit, which is perfectly fine. And that's probably important to remember too, but it was his naming story. The whole thing is about the boy saving the, it was, it was a baby. It wasn't a little boy, but, but that was where my dad's name came from. So that part is directly from the family. Um, And then there are aspects of, of, Jude Star, um, like our my people are in that area in El Reno, um, but we didn't have a boarding school history, so that that is where I it's completely fiction and and that was just research. And one thing I thought about too is I feel like since the time there there came out, there's been a lot more general cultural awareness of the history that you're work speak to and even if that's just in something like films and tv just some things that come to mind are reservation dogs and you know recently killers of the flower moon how do you feel about that that's i know that's a big question but it seems like there's more rep more representation happening you know obviously killers is coming from was written by a white man coming from a very specific perspective but yeah what are your what how do you feel about this question of like representation and and what it can offer i think it's probably the most exciting time we've had for representation for native people so i feel like you know i could i could tell you i could tell you something more nuanced and complex that has sort of barbs in it about how i feel but i'd rather just say i I think it's the most hopeful I've, I've ever felt about how, you know, Lily, Lily Gladstone's up for an Academy Award and even just Killers of the Flower Moon, despite what problems people might have with it. We had a lot of, we had a big cast in there. And this is a story that was told from our perspective, which was first told from the FBI perspective. Um, so even if it was written by a white man, attention on us historically has been good. Like, Dances with Wolves, when it swept the Oscars, it created like a, a little renaissance in interest in us. And that means people are like, they want to publish us. They want to cast us in movies and 
all of this is good for representation. So um, Reservation Dogs is amazing. Um, so is Rutherford Falls. There's a lot like the new True Detective season has like this big Alaska Native component. Um, so I think it's a super exciting time um, for us. And we it's it's much needed. Like the it is just pathetic how long like the way people have thought of us as just like related to pilgrims or related to cowboys as that's basically what we were um and, and always historical so as much contemporary representation and as, as as widely as we can be seen on the biggest stages uh it's going to bring a lot of healing for us because we we haven't been able to move out of history and um that's super harmful um so the way you think of yourself and the way that you think of other people thinking of you in the American imagination. So I'm, I'm super hopeful. I, I want to answer it in a really positive light because that's how I feel. Nice. Yeah, it, it feels super exciting on on my end too. And it feels like we're in such a weird time in this country. Like I feel like everything is happening. Like we're figuring out so much. It feels like so much is being unearthed. And yet we're, we're still working it out, but I'm really grateful for this book because it felt, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, contemporary and, and so present, but also connected to the past. And I think it's a book that should be required reading in, in school. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, or just for anyone, really who's interested in, in history and how it, how it relates to us and our lived experience. So thank you so much, Tommy, for being on the podcast and taking the time to, to chat about your process and the book. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on and um, for all of your um, very thoughtful and um, with compliment embedded questions. Um, I, I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events you can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time. <laughs>